I am sure. But you are here, and I'm glad that you're here because we're starting a new series called Epic. Uh, That's what that says, uh, projected on the walls. Epic, Heroes and Villains of the Bible. And the interesting thing about that is we're going to be, over the next few weeks, over the the rest of the summer, we're going to be looking at stories from Scripture that you may be familiar with, that you may have heard of, but you might learn something about them in a totally different light because what we have found as we have investigated these stories is that oftentimes, if not all the time, the heroes and the villains in the story are one and the same, one and the same person, one and the same group. And uh, we, maybe you, can relate to that in some way. So it's going to be a fascinating look at these famous biblical stories and some that are not so famous. And we're talking about this whole idea because even still today, we love heroes. You love heroes, right? What did you think? Did you get a little bit silly inside when you walked onto the patio and saw Mighty Morphin Power Rangers <laughs> and saw Princess Leia with like her real hair done like this? She looked legit. And everyone and Wonder Woman and or was it like Saturday morning when like your favorite show was going to come on and you were just about to like jump out of your onesie with excitement and, and just, you know, doped up on pancake syrup. And this is just like what you, what you live for, right? I used to love Sunday or Saturday mornings, watching cartoons, eating pancakes, hanging out with my brothers. It was just an awesome thing. You still kind of get excited when there's some heroic thing that you can look up to. We, we're pulled toward, we're drawn toward. We love those kind of heroes. You still do, right? Tell me what your favorite heroes were slash are in your life. Go ahead, play with me. Wonder Woman was really your favorite. That's awesome. Spider-Man. What was it? Kato. Who the heck? You... <laughs> I don't even know what that is. <laughs> Batman. Everyone, all three services, they say Batman. No one says Robin. Uh, who else? Lisa, who was your favorite? No, but She-Ra. I'll just give you one. She-Ra. She-Ra. He-Man. Anyone else? Flash Gordon. Popeye totally counts. Plus, he's nutritious. You can use that with your kids. I love G.I. Joes, uh, you know, and, and just like playing with the little figurines on the floor and setting up zip lines. And my parents actually, actually, my parents didn't buy it. Their friends bought us the seven-foot-long um, aircraft carrier, and, and it was like my parents' nightmare. And, and they figured out a way to like put it on a big plywood and like pulley system in the garage so it could go up, car could come in, car goes out, it comes down, we play. That was crazy. But we loved our G.I. Joes. Also, true confession, when I was about seven, eight, nine years old, there was this cartoon on television called Gem and the Holograms, right? And I had a little nine-year-old crush on Jim. She was so stinking cute. And she would touch her earring and she'd be like, it's showtime, Synergy. And then she would turn in, she would turn into like this chick rocker and it was awesome. We still, I mean, they make, they, I don't even know how many Superman movies that they've made. They just keep making them with new Superman. They just keep making Batman movies and X-Men movies. And they, I mean, we just can't get enough because we love our heroes. 
There's something about it. We just get inspired from a young age. Even when you have a newborn kid, you buy him a Superman shirt like I did. This is Jack in his Superman cape. Look at him. It's like he knows and he belongs. You know, he's just like, yep, I, I am wearing a Superman cape. And so we look at scripture and you think the Bible's full of superheroes in scripture, right? Wrong. It's not. The Bible is full of real, regular, everyday people. Some with some gigantic strengths, everyone with some pretty significant weaknesses. That's what I love about the Bible. Maybe you've read it and maybe you've given up on it and maybe you started to read and it was too complex or you went to this book first and it was like, what the heck are they talking But one of the things you just have to love and respect about the Bible is it is real. You're reading a story and you're like, why did they put that in here? That's terrible. That's a terrible example. And, but it's just real. It just tells you like it is. This is the way the people behaved. This is what they did. God did that and the people did that. Yeah. And God's not afraid for you to know. It's just, it's just real. And, uh, and so it's encouraging to us. And the Bible is full of regular, real people, which is why we're looking at this series over the summer. Look at Hebrews chapter 11 with me. It says, what shall I say? I do not have time to go and tell you about all the heroes like Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, and all those through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, dot, 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 did all kinds of other really cool stuff. And then here's the point, whose weakness was turned to strength, whose weakness was turned into strength. The the heroes, the characters in the Bible are not superheroes. They're real people that in spite of their weaknesses, God still used them. 2 Corinthians 12, 9 says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. Do you boast about your weaknesses? No, you don't. It's counterintuitive. You, like me, try to hide our weaknesses. Uh, Put them to the side. You don't want people to know your biggest failures and your biggest fears and insecurities. We tend to cover those up. This is America. America. You know, this is like we just celebrate the 4th of July. We just, it's strength and honor. And we just, we just project all the strength that we can. We want to minimize our weaknesses. And this scripture is saying, no, 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 no. But in your weakness, if you handle it right, you can be made strong. So how do we do that when we secretly all just want to be awesome? Uh, Samson is the closest thing to an actual superhero in the Bible. He's just like, he's wild and he is gifted. And, and even more so than you think, you've, you've heard probably of Samson's strength, but he's even more gifted than that. Before I tell you some Samson stories, I want to give you just a little bit of the context into which Samson is born. Because he's born in a really interesting time and place. Here's what the Bible says in Judges chapter 13, verse 1. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. Another place it says that the Israelites did what was right in their own eyes, irrespective of what God wanted for them. 
And, and let me just give you like the, the cycle of Israel's history. So Israel are the people of God. That's the nation of God. Those are the people who God said, I'm going to choose a group of people to represent me on earth. I want you guys to be my hands and feet. You're going to show, express my love. You're going to express my mercy. You're going to be kind of the, the reflection of me, point back to me. You're going to be the example to all the other people of the world. That's what I want you to be, Jewish people, the Jewish nation, Israelites, Hebrews. That's who I want you to be. But what happened was they were tight with God and they, you know, they got these commandments and they were like, yeah, we're with you. We're on this. And then they slowly started to look away from God and do their own thing and get focused on themselves. And God seemed a little bit distant for a while. They would just find something else to make them feel better. And they would worship this little thing and they would do the things their own way. And God would be like, oh, this is not going to go well for you. I'm your God. I created you. But they would just be like, ah, this, it's been a while. You've been quiet. We're doing our own thing. And it would just get worse. And And so God would just kind of hand them over to whatever it is that they were choosing and just say, all right, but here's how it's going to go. And then things would get really bad and they would get hungry and they would get beat up and they would get taken captive and they would get into all kinds of mess. And then they would realize that they would feel the pain and they'd say, God, forgive us. Take us back. Make this right. Uh, uh, You know, we want to be with you. This is crazy. We, we, We made a mistake. Restore us. And God, in his infinite, unending mercy and wisdom, would say, okay, come on back. And he would send them a a deliverer or a redeemer or a hero type person, like a prophet, or in this book, like a judge who would come in and say, all right, here's, here's how we're going. This is how we get back on track. Here's all the lies that you're believing. Here are all the patterns that you're in that are destructive. Let's get back on track and live the way that God originally intended us to live because it's going to go better that way. And they'd be like, yes, thank you, God. Okay, things are great. The crops are flourishing. The relationships are doing well. People are making money again. Everything is peaceful and good and secure. And then slowly they get their eyes kind of on their own stuff again. And we're going to do things our way. And God, you've been silent for a while. And I feel pretty good about my life. I'm going to take some risks and some gambles over here. And they get off track again. And it's that cycle over and over and over again in the Old Testament. Except this case is a little bit different. In this case, they don't feel the pain of their choices and decisions. Because the Philistines, who God has handed them over to are not angry, oppressive, slave-driving people. They aren't taxing them at 80%. They aren't beating them up at every opportunity. Instead, they're trying to wipe out the entire Israel nation by making them really comfortable, by marrying their women and offering their women to marry the Israelite men, and by making their way of life seem really attractive. And by welcoming them into their parties and their gods and their idols and their things like that and making it feel good and normal and prosperous. The Israelites don't, it's like the, it's like the frog in the water, just the getting turned up to the point of boiling. They don't even realize that they're on the verge of extinction because they have enfolded themselves and assimilated in to this Philistine culture. And it's into that that God takes action and says, before you guys are just wiped out because of your ignorance and because you're going along with the cultural current, I'm going to send a deliverer even though you don't even know to ask for one. And so he sends Samson. 
Chapter 13, verse 2. A man from Zorah named Manoah, from the clan of the Danites, had a wife who was childless, unable to give birth. The angel of the Lord appeared to her and said, You are barren and childless, but you are going to become pregnant and give birth to a son. Now see to it that you drink no wine or fermented drink and that you do not eat anything unclean. You will become pregnant and have a son whose head is never to be touched by a razor because the boy is to be a a Nazarite, dedicated to God from the womb. He will take the lead in delivering Israel from the hands of the Philistines. That sentence, one more time. He will take the lead in delivering Israel from the hands of the Philistines. Now consider for a moment what we know about Samson from just this little bit of text and that surrounding chapter. We know that Samson's birth was announced by an angel. So God wants to send this deliverer, and he shows up in the form of an angel to tell the parents, I'm going to give you a kid. You haven't been able to have a kid thus far. I love doing crazy miraculous, generous things. So since you haven't been able to have a kid on your own, I'm giving you a kid and not just any kid. This kid's going to be heroic. This kid's going to be the answer. He's going to be the deliverer. He's going to shake things up and, and, and wake Israel up and free them from the Philistines, even though they don't, need, they don't know that they need freeing. Samson was also set apart to be a Nazarite from birth which is just like another level of dedication. A Nazarite could not be around any dead people. No funerals, no anything. It was just like an unclean thing. Stay away from the dead. He also, or she also, could not drink alcohol, couldn't touch their tongue, and they would never cut their hair. Those were three outward expressions of their inner devotion and dedication to God. And so he was set apart in that way. Third, his life was was a mission that was clear. It was to deliver God's people. So it was set out from the very beginning. This is your life mission, Samson. That's the expectation for your life. He was raised in a godly home by godly parents who wanted to cooperate with God. He was blessed by God as a young child, and he was empowered by God's spirit as a young child to be the one to deliver the Israelites from the Philistines. Are you with me? Do you track? Do you see the incredible expectations put on this human guy? Do you see the potential pressure of what could be, of what he should become? And you add on top of that just unbelievable physical strength. And he was good looking, the Bible says. This guy was burdened with potential. He had such high expectations for his life. And you need to understand that about Samson if you're going to understand the larger story. God gifted him with incredible abilities. And we know, because we all hear this, we know that with great blessing comes great responsibility. I think in Spider-Man, it's with great power comes great responsibility, right? It's just a thing that we know in our culture. Or another way of saying it, to whom much is given, much is expected. We know this. It's just kind of a rule of life. If you are gifted, there's going to be more expected of you. If you have high potential, there's an expectation that you reach it. 
If you're born in America in this free nation, there's an expectation. If you're born into that family, there's an expectation. If you have that kind of wealth, there's an expectation. If you have that mind, that brain, that capacity, that sense of humor, that athletic ability, all these things, there's an expectation thrust upon you. Just because it's in the news right now and you can't get away from it, let's talk about LeBron James for 10 seconds. LeBron James, you excited about his, uh, <laughs> there's like clapping involved in this. LeBron James, uh, thank God, won a championship because if that man had not, have never won a basketball championship, he would have been the laughing stock of the NBA. Why? Because he's the most physically gifted athlete we've ever seen in the sport. The guy is freakishly big and strong and fast and athletic. To, to, for him not to achieve the highest pinnacle of his sport would have been an utter disappointment and he would have been laughed out of the league because he's that gifted. You imagine that pressure? You imagine that expectation? Some of you can because you know that kind of expectation. Some of you know what it is to be born into a certain kind of family or to be born with certain kind of privileges, or to have the kind of mind that you do, or the job opportunity, or that education paid for. Some, some, some of you know what that feels like to grow up. People tell you, you have such potential. You have such potential. You have such potential, and it weighs on you like this weight, this burden. Others of you, maybe there's some of you here that you have never heard those words. You have never felt like you have great potential, that someone kind of squashed that out of you as a young person to, to the point where you feel worthless or you feel like there, there, there's, there's nothing like this for me. But you still have dreams in you, don't you? You still have hopes, aspirations, things that maybe could be, that maybe you could participate in. That's God whispering to you about how he has uniquely wired you and that you do have great potential. When God blesses us with talent or wealth or heritage or experience, it is not for our own sake. He invites us to play a part in his bigger story, but sometimes we get freaked out and we respond to that pressure and that potential in weird ways. Here are the negative ways that we tend to respond to that burden of expectation. The first one is we panic. There's fear and we panic and we don't know how we're going to get there or how we're going to reach that dream or how we're going to live up to his expectation or how we're going to be like that guy or how we're going to make that much money or how we're going to get our business from here to there. And we panic and we freak out and we try to control everything and we try to get like freakishly organized or disciplined to the point of just obsession because we're panicked. Another thing that we do is we get paralyzed. Maybe if you're not the panicking type, you just like freeze. I'm not going to be frantic. Instead, I'm going to freeze. And I don't know how I'm going to get there or how I'm going to unleash maybe what's in me or what that even looks like, so I'm just not going to do anything. I'm just, going to, I'm just kind of frozen. I'm paralyzed with the potential. Or the third thing that people do is they, get, they feel privileged or, in other words, entitled. And they think, dang right, I'm all that. You know, I, I am brilliant. I am this. I do deserve that. That person's making that much money. I should make more than that. That person has that. I'm more gifted. I should have this. I should be here by now. I should be there. I deserve what's coming to me. And it's a focus on self. And that's kind of what happens to our friend Samson here. But there's an alternative to those three things. And the alternative is to be grateful. To be grateful. 
to realize that God is ultimately the source, that you are not your own source. When you are grateful, you can embrace what is and trust God, leave up to him. I'm just jacking that sentence up. Leave what could be up to God. Leave what could be up to God. So you're embracing what is, that he has gifted me in these great ways, that he has put me in this awesome family, that he has given me these gifts and abilities. He has given me these opportunities. He has made me smart. He has made me funny. He has made me this way, this way, this way. He's put these things and lined them up in my life. I embrace those things. I'm not lying about those things. Those things are real and true. I embrace them. And yet... I let go of the control of what tomorrow may hold, of what the future is. I'm just going to do the best I can with what he's given me today and let go and trust God for the uncertain future. Because I don't know if life is going to go this way. I don't know if life is going to go this way. More realistically, it's probably going to go this way. But I do know this. If I panic, if I get paralyzed, or if I get entitled and privileged, I'm probably going to go a lot more like this. And so we learn what it is to embrace what is and leave what could be up to God. Otherwise, for me, I'll end up overthinking the future or overinflating my own ego. That's where Samson fell. Now, Samson, let me just tell you, this guy was a freak of nature. There was a story about Samson when he was like being charged at by a lion. A lion. Like this isn't, this isn't National Geographic on television. Like imagine you're there and there's a lion charging at you, like a real lion. And Samson is there and he just like takes this lion, flips him over, and the Bible says literally tears him apart with his bare hands as if he were a small baby goat. I've never torn apart a small baby goat, but I'm assuming that it's easier than a lion. I have a hard enough time with a rotisserie chicken, but, it's, but he takes a lion and tears this thing apart like it's nothing. The dude is freakishly strong. There's another story where the Philistines had done something, had done something terrible to Samson, and so to get them back, he catches 300 foxes. He, he, he's fast. He catches 300 foxes like in an afternoon before dinner and, and, and gets them together. I don't know what the fox said, but they must have been uh, angry in that moment. So he's, he, he has foxes and he ties a torch to their tails. Now, he might have gone something like this. Here's a fox. Here's a torch. I try to tie the tail to the torch, but I don't have enough tail. So I need another fox. Fox number two comes. I use his tail. Now I tie both tails around the one torch, and I've got this, like, two-headed fox fire. And, and he unleashes 150 two-headed fox fires into the valley of the Philistines where all their crops are, and they burn up all the crops, which is like their economy for the year. And understandably, the Philistines are pretty bummed about this. But Samson, not only strong and fast, he's creative. I wouldn't have thought, I wouldn't have thought of catching foxes and tying torches to their tails, but that is something else. So the Philistines are angry and they come looking for Samson, like you do. And so, and so they come and they, they you know, knock on the doors of the other Jewish guys' houses and they're like, hey, don't play dumb. We know that you saw the smoke for days. Uh, that was your boy Samson. Bring out Samson or we're going to kill all y'all. 
And so the Jewish people are like, hey, you know, this is going to go bad for us, Samson. We need to, like, hand you over to them. And they're like, on the download, nice work. But now, now we need to, like, give you to them or they're going to kill all of us. Uh, and so this is, this is how it goes. They said to him in verse 12 of chapter 15, we have come to tie you up and hand you over to the Philistines. Samson said, swear to me that you won't kill me yourselves. Now, he's saying this not because he's scared, but because he's strategic. He doesn't want one of his own people to be scared of him, stab him in the back, and then hand him over. He wants to be alive when he's put in front of the Philistines, if you know what I mean. He has some plans. And so he says, deliver me alive. Verse 13, agreed, they answered. We will only tie you up and hand you over to them. We will not kill you. So they bound him with two new ropes because new ropes are supposed to be stronger than old ropes. Uh, And as he came, as he approached Lehi, the Philistines came toward him shouting because they're angry. The spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon Samson. The ropes on his arms became like charred flax and the bindings dropped from his hands. I imagine he just like literally flexes his forearms and they're they're just like off him. Verse 15, finding a fresh jawbone of a donkey, like you do, uh, he he grabbed it and struck down a thousand men. Here's a picture of a jawbone of a donkey. It looks like this. So imagine him grabbing where those front, I just thought of the donkey in Shrek, and that's sad. he, they grab the front, he grabs the front where like the band is, and he grabs it there and he just goes to work on a thousand, on a thousand Philistine men. Now, these are not weak men. They are sending their strongest men to go try to apprehend Samson. They know who Samson is. He's the strongest person they've ever heard of. So they send a thousand of them to go try to apprehend him. And they're well armed. They've got their swords. They've got their spears. And Samson stands in front of them, grabs a donkey's jawbone and says, why did y'all bring a sword to a jawbone fight? And then he just whips them, every last one of them. You'd think like after a hundred are lying on the ground that they might rethink their strategy and maybe just throw rocks from a distance or something like that. But he is so strong, so fast, and so strategic, he wipes out all of them. And then he says this, verse 16. With a donkey's jawbone, I have made donkeys of them. With a donkey's jawbone, I have killed a thousand men. Crazy strength. Shocking weakness. He just has a total disregard for human life. I mean, he's standing over these dead bodies and he's telling jokes and using poetry to, to elevate himself and to boast of this great triumph over his enemies. Crazy strengths, shocking weakness, disregard for human life. The very end of that chapter, chapter 15, the last sentence says this, Samson led Israel for 20 years in the days of the Philistines. And then the very next sentence, the first verse in chapter 16 says, one day Samson went to Gaza where he saw a prostitute. Now he didn't just like see a prostitute and be like, oh, hi, and then like have coffee. He saw the prostitute. And the way it said, it probably wasn't the only time. 
crazy strengths, really glaring weaknesses. What we see in Samson is a bundle of contradictions. Samson is a one-man army who also isolated himself. Samson was incredibly gifted physically and really lustful physically. He was a man of prayer who also gave in to fits of rage. Samson was a leader of the Israelite people who married a foreign woman. He was a man of God who acted on his own. And here's the reality, friends. With great strengths, great strengths are always accompanied by some great liabilities. Great strengths are always accompanied by great liabilities. Usually, they are the other side of the same coin. And Samson, his contradictions, his inconsistencies, his liabilities would be his undoing. Verse 4 of chapter 16. Sometime later, Samson fell in love with a woman from the valley of Sorek, Philistine, whose name was Delilah. Hey there, Delilah. That's like where they get the name. The rulers of the Philistines went to her and said, see if you can lure him into showing you the secret of his great strength. Because it's not like he just does push-ups every morning. It's like crazy strength. So that we can see how we can overpower him and may tie him up and subdue him. Now, Delilah was eventually successful. So she finds her way into Samson's heart. He lusts her. He, you know, loves her and whatever. And she finally convinces him, tell me the source of your strength. Tell me what it is. He makes some, like, random stuff up. Oh, I, it's, you know, when I stand on one leg, you know, I, whatever. He just makes some stuff up. And then, they, and then she goes and tells her Philistine friends, hey, hey, it's, it's when he does this. Now come and get him. I've got him, you know, tied. And then he snaps out and he, you know, wipes him out. But then there's this one time where he says, it's, it, my secret is in my hair. And so Samson falls asleep and Delilah cuts his hair off. Samson wakes up and she says, the Philistines are upon you, they're here. And Samson gets up and he's like, oh, let's fight. And he has no strength. Because the Bible says God's presence had departed from Samson. Now, do you think that Samson's strength was literally in that part of hair that she cut off? No. Do you think that Samson thought that his strength was literally in that part of the, in his hair that got cut off? I don't think so. I think Samson thought that he was invincible. I think Samson fully thought that even if he was like shaved head, that he would just still flex and things would just fall off themselves. I think he thought that he could not be defeated, that he, that he would just, he could do whatever he wanted. Because for Samson, he had become his own hero. His gifts, his strengths, his abilities had been employed for his own benefit and for his own amusement and for the lifting up of his own ego to the point where God just finally said, Samson, you have missed this whole story. You have gotten so far off track. I can't participate in this anymore. And God's presence left Samson. Traditionally, when the story has been told or when you heard it maybe growing up or when you think about it, People tend to think that Samson is the hero, this crazy strong man of God, this wild, reckless, but amazingly strong guy. He's the hero, and Delilah is the villain. 
But that's not the case. Samson is his own worst enemy. Samson is the hero and he's the villain. Samson, with all his incredible strength, can do so much, and yet he allowed his weaknesses to undermine everything to the point where he lost everything. Do you know anything about that? Do you know anything about being your own worst enemy? Do you know anything about having strengths? But the other side of that coin is some glaring weaknesses that, if unchecked, if unmanaged, if, if, un, if unsurrendered, man, they could derail you. I, I am a strong leader. God's wired me as a strong leader, and I have been kind of groomed for that my whole life. Oldest of three boys, oldest of 11 grandkids. Uh, and then I was like the captain of all the sports teams through college, and it was just kind of worked that way. But my, my part of it was conditioning, and my parents teaching me and other people teaching me that I am an example setter, that people are always watching me, that they're going to do what you do, Caleb, and, and they look up to you. And so I took that really seriously, and I felt the eyes on me, and I, and I stepped up, and I said, well, then I won't let them down, and well, I'll be the guy, and I'll lead the charge, and I'll set the example, and I'll go there first. And there's a strength there. There's a strength that God has given me there. But there's a downside, too. Downsides are that I can take myself too seriously. That thinking that people are watching me all the time can make me self-conscious. I can stress myself out about whether or not I'm reaching my potential, whether or not I'm getting there. I can get really critical of myself and down on myself, and then I get critical of others close to me because they represent me or because they should be helping me get further faster. And that's no fun for anybody else. And I have, a, I have a tough time letting loose because I know that I'm setting an example and people are watching me. So it's, I, sometimes I have a difficult time just being fully playful and fully myself. I can risk. I can take big risks strategically, leadership-wise decisions, but I have a tough time taking risks socially. It's the downside. It's the weakness on the other side of the coin of a strength that God's given me. But... I'm my best when I'm myself and when I am not trying to be heroic. And Samson would have been his best if he was not trying to be heroic. And you would be your best if instead you chose humility over heroics. If you choose humility over heroics. Let me read 2 Corinthians 12, 9 to you one more time. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Let me just tell you three quick things, what humility can look like. Just pulled from the story of Samson. Humility can look like this. Remembering where you come from. Remembering that this is the story that you were born into, that this is the place you were born into, that this is what you were set up for. Remembering that God has been faithful to you this whole time already and remembering why you're here. Like Samson, there's a clear path for his life. This is what I want you to do. You're not here to just make money for yourself. You're not here to just inflate your own ego. You're here for the sake of other people. Remember what you're here to do. And then lastly, remember who your source is. That you are not the source of your own strength. God gives you gifts and he calls them gifts for a reason. They're from him. 
and they're meant to be used as a gift to other people. If you don't view life that way, if you don't live that way, if we don't do that, we're going to choose the direction that Samson chose. And I want you to imagine this as his life is ending. He's, he's captured by these Philistines and they gouge out his eyes. They don't want him to be able to see just in case his strength comes back. His eyes are gone. They throw him in prison. His strength is gone. His purpose is gone. This man is alone in prison. The former you know, heavyweight champion of strength in the universe and he is now bound, shackled and weak and purposeless in, in jail. And he would have died there except for the Philistines were throwing a party one day and they wanted to make fun of this former heavyweight. And so they say, bring out that Samson guy who used to be so strong. Let's have him kind of dance around in front of us. And they're making fun of him. And they're like, look, you don't even have eyes and you can't even do anything. You don't even, can't even do a push-up anymore. And like, here you are. And they're just laughing at him, making fun of him. And so Samson says, God, Forgive me. I know that I wrecked things, but if you would just give me one more act of strength, if you would just come upon me one last time and just give me the strength to push this pillar and this pillar down, then I think, I know I can feel that this is like structural for this room and the whole thing will collapse. If you would just give me one last chance to do what you put me on earth to do, which was to liberate your people from these Philistines who are mocking us, if you would just give me one more glimpse of your power. Samson said, and then let me die with the Philistines. And then he pushed with all his might and down came the whole temple. The rulers and all the people were in it. Thus he killed many more when he died than when he lived. Now friends, Samson is not the hero of this story. God is that God would still use him, that God was just waiting for Samson to turn and say, hey, I'm sorry, I blew it, and he is right there. God has a way of reminding us that he's the hero in all of our stories, that he allows us to participate with him, to use the gifts, the strengths, the abilities that he has given us. But the story is about him. He is the hero we can just rest and be glad that God uses flawed people, that we don't have to be perfect, that he knows that we're a bundle of strengths and weaknesses, of inconsistencies and contradictions, and he still chooses to use us, that when we cry out to him, he comes back with his presence, he comes back with his power, and he still uses us today. And the way he worked that out was Samson was just a little hint. He was just a shadow of a redeemer, of a rescuer that would be coming generations later. Jesus came into a culture that didn't know that it needed him that didn't know, like our culture, that we were just getting caught up in the ways of the world, that we were just comfortable, that we're just going along our merry way, not using all of our strength for his benefit. We didn't even know, and Jesus comes to deliver us in the midst of that. And he says, I know that you're a bundle of strengths and weaknesses. I will die and overcome all your weaknesses. I know that all of you have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. I know that all of you have fallen short of your potential. I know that all of you have fallen short of being heroic like you want to, and I'll account for that, and I'll still use you. 
That's the invitation. Because in our weakness, he is made strong. When you say, God, I I am just going to humbly put myself before you. I'm going to trust you with the future. I'm going to trust you with with whatever's going on. I'm just going to give you what I have today and do my very best. And I thank you that you use flawed people because you are the strong one. God, I pray that you continue to speak to us now, that you would expose in our own hearts where we're still hiding or ashamed of our weakness, that you would give us courage to live into the places that you've gifted us, and that ultimately you would just make us humble and grateful that you use people like us.